Welcome to Chain Reaction, the Foreign Policy Research Institute's flagship network of podcast series examining the political, security, economic, and social trends shaping Europe and Eurasia. Throughout the year, we're talking with experts about developments in Russia's war in Ukraine, the new European security order, the past, present, and future of the Baltic states, Russia's political economy, and great power competition in the region. Join us each month for Bear Market Brief, the understanding of, of Russia, which is broadly as Russia is a great power that has its own special path, that has a mission and that needs a strong state, you know, and, and a different path to that of the West. I think when you look at these other industries, what you find is that there's a lot of pain built up uh, in, in different parts of the Russian economy. Some of it's only to be felt over a longer period of time. Baltic ways. The countries that when the war started, they were willing to be, you know, those uh, voices of uh, moral conscience. The continent. I think that this conflict today proves that we are able to go past grievances and that we are able to look into the future, into the common future together. Report in short. This is the real Achilles heel of Putin's mobilization. And of course, our flagship chain reaction. These two countries are interacting militarily or have been interacting in several different conflicts. And in some cases, they're on the same side. And in some cases, they're not. New episodes are available each week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This week on the Bear Market Brief. For just a second here, put yourself in the shoes of a liberally-oriented Russian 20-something. Things in the country have not been going well. Your government is getting more autocratic, seemingly by the month, and the economy hasn't grown in years. And then, one morning, in February 2022, you awake to horrifying news that your government has launched an unprovoked war of aggression against its neighbor. You're deeply morally opposed. So what do you do? Welcome to another episode of the Bear Market Brief. I'm your host, Darren Schwartzbaum. Today, we're going to zoom in and focus on resistance in Russia. How are Russians who are against the war expressing that sentiment? And why aren't people just protesting? Now, I'm not suggesting here that Russians are the primary victims of the war. Far from it. But I do think that the experience of Russians in opposition to the war is part of the broader mosaic that is the war in Ukraine, and therefore is worth our time to investigate. Joining us today is Colleen Wood, who a few months back wrote an article about the Green Ribbon Movement in Russia. I'm attaching a link in the episode description. Colleen is a writer and educator based in St. Paul, Minnesota. She teaches courses in political science at Century College and researches human rights and digital politics in Central Asia. She holds a PhD in political science from Columbia University. We had a really engaging and indeed far-reaching conversation. I hope you enjoy. Colleen, great to have you with us today. Hi, Erin. Yeah, glad to be here. So let's start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell us what's keeping you busy these days. So I am an incoming professor at Century College, a two-year college in Minnesota, just outside the Twin Cities. Um, But outside of teaching, I am working on a bigger project on the history of Russian language education in the U.S. So trying to get beyond the Ivies, of course, like they play a big role, but trying to focus on the unexpected corners, like um, an immersion camp that's been operating in northern Minnesota since the 1960s. So what's the logic of teaching Russian? Why do we do it? 
that's what I'm researching. Fascinating and uh, something I've been through myself personally as a product of Russian language education. We had some very memorable textbooks that are a conversation for for another time. Let's get into the subject matter today, though. Um, you fairly recently wrote an article, in essence, about resistance in Russia and how Russians are pushing back against the war. So let's start at kind of a very top level here. You're Russian today. You're against the war. What options do you even have to express that? Yes, I think that the framework of exit voice loyalty, that the three options that um, are, are normally seen as the, the main setup for, for resistance, I think are really, it's a limited framework when thinking about Russia that, okay, exit, you leave, but you leave and do what? Um, so there are a lot of Russians who have left Russia. Um, so some of them out of fear of being drafted, some of them just leaving out of principle, not wanting to live in a country that is pursuing a, an awful war. But some people are leaving as a way to be better positioned to organize resistance. So thinking there of Daria Serenka of the feminist anti-war resistance. Of course, though, this has kind of limited or mixed results. For example, a lot of activists who went to Kyrgyzstan have had a hard time continuing up their, their anti-war organizing. Um, we have the the voice part of the framework. Um, so that's the people who are who are speaking up. And you would think more than a year into the war, as the government has continued to enact new laws, new restrictions on speech, on assembly, that this would no longer be an option. But we do see people continuing to picket, continuing to get arrested publicly. Um, and in addition to that, there's people who are getting involved anonymously. This looks like um perhaps donating money to humanitarian aid, being involved with legal aid for others who have been arrested, or smaller actions, putting a sticker somewhere on the subway, scrabbling uh, anti-war graffiti on, on the, the bus stop, things like that. And then, of course, you have the, the loyalty arm. Um, and here, I, don't, I think taking silence as support for the war is misguided, um, that there's definitely a lot of anger from the West about why aren't Russians protesting? Why aren't they going out screaming, pushing against Putin um, and, and taking silence or the lack of mass mobilization as loyalty doesn't quite describe the situation, but silence is certainly an option that many Russians have taken, whether out of support of the war or fear of reprisal. So I want to pull the string uh, a little further here. One of the terms that came up in your article is atomized protest action. What is that? Tell me about the relevance to modern Russia. Yeah. So atomized protest action is basically in contexts where organizers recognize that there's going to be punishment or harm coming from organizing a protest of a thousand people. They encourage and teach folks who have this anti-war sentiment, who have this resistance attitude, how to pursue actions individually. Um, and in each of these individual foot-dragging episodes, you can eventually aggregate up to create some sort of bigger social change, is the idea at least. Um, and so we've seen this turn towards atomization definitely in the last 14 months um, since, since the war began. Um, for example, like the first two weeks after the invasion, there were mass protests across Russia. 56 plus cities saw big gatherings of people, almost 5,000 people arrested. Um, and after two weeks, that pretty much plummets, like goes down. But you still 
see individual detentions, individual arrests, because people are doing this atomized approach to pickets, to um, kind of more subversive actions um, and, and anti-war communicating. So I think since since March 2022, there have been almost 20,000 detentions um, under the new set of anti-war discrimination laws in Russia. So I think that's a kind of a great segue to talk about the evolution of resistance as the war has continued. So yes, there were definitely protests uh, at the outside of the war that were met with increasingly repressive measures. What are we seeing uh, more recently? And I think this leads us to the green ribbons you wrote about. Tell us about that. Yeah, so there definitely has been a shift, like I said, in scale of moving from kind of mass mobilization, mass protest to these more atomized individual actions. Um, but I think in, in in addition to the atomization, we also then see that there's intention behind that. So prior to 2022, there's a lot of criticism of the Russian opposition. It's fragmented. There's no real leader other than Navalny. Um, there's no organization. They don't have any goals. Um and since the war, pressure from the regime has pushed activists actually to lean into that. So you have a lot of these groups that are adopting a cell structure in which arresting the leader of one cell, whether that's operating in an individual city or a, a neighborhood, taking that out doesn't take out the overall organization. So the feminist anti-war resistance uses this cell structure and Green Ribbon uses this cell structure as well. Um, and so Green Ribbon... Simple premise, um, so Russian for Green Ribbon, has this pretty straightforward manifesto in which it asks people to hang green ribbons in public places as a way to signal their opposition to the war. Um, their goals being twofold. So one, hanging these green ribbons around is a way to signal to other people with anti-war sentiment that they're not alone. So people know to be looking for green ribbons out in public. But two, the goal is also to inform and to change minds. And the way that this happens is that uh, in addition to just hanging a green ribbon, the organizers instruct people to scribble either hashtags, um, no to war, um, to write down maybe the handle or the telegram, a link to the telegram channel of this organization. Um, and the way that the green ribbon movement works then is it kind of straddles this in-person and virtual thing. So it's, it's asking people to do a real physical, tangible task, hang a ribbon in public, hang it somewhere that's super visible, but also take a picture of it and send that picture to the telegram bot that the organizers have put together. Um, and that bot then like coordinates um, all of these posts, which are then reposted to Instagram, TikTok, Telegram as a way to further amplify the message. So someone in Sochi maybe only sees the one or two ribbons being hung in their town, but by being on these different um, social media channels, they can see that the ribbons go much, much further and extend all across the Russian Federation. So stepping back from the the narrative here and the, the implications of this movement, and I think we can talk about that more to follow, uh, how did you pick this subject matter? Why did you decide this is important? What was your kind of rationale, motivation here? How did I decide it was important? So in February 2022, I watched from, from New York the news of the invasion with a feeling of sickness. Um, it was really hard to witness. Um, and as a researcher, um, writer, thinker, the one thing that I found myself able to do 
to feel like I was helping in some way was to write. Um, and so that involved trawling all of the kind of corners of social media that I've followed for the last several years and studying digital politics for my PhD. Um, and so in, in March 2022, together with Alexis Lerner, we wrote a piece on anti-war graffiti um, and graffiti as a space and tactic for anti-war mobilization, for communicating anti-war feelings. And it was there that I first noticed the hashtag Tihi Piquet, so quiet picket. Um, and I had been following that for several months um, and kind of keeping tabs on what people are posting, how they're posting. Uh, and so it was about, um, it was March, that same month that I noticed alongside the Tihi Piquet, the Zelione Alenta, the Green Ribbon account being opened um, and had followed that for several months. And it wasn't until December that things kind of formed together. And it was, um, I was finally able to get in touch with some of the organizers of the organization after prodding on Instagram, on Telegram, bugging all kinds of different people through DMs that I was able to get in touch with someone and wanted to communicate their story um, with with the English speaking world through, through Coda Story is where the article was published. Yeah, it's a great news source if you're looking to follow uh, these issues more closely. So let's dive back into the subject matter now that we've we've addressed that. I think it's an important and moving point, certainly uh, relate to a lot of what you said there. Um, who is against the war demographic-wise? Where do they live? This is a very hard question to answer. Um, I mean, we know where a lot of them live, which is outside of Russia, a lot of these people um in the upwards of tens of thousands of people who have left have done so for kind of politically motiv motivated reasons out of self-preservation, wanting to be able to keep um, doing anti-war organizing. But in terms of within Russia, trying to get a snapshot of the demographics of who is resisting is tough. Like if you look at one survey, it'll show 60% of Russians hate the war and want Putin to leave tomorrow. You look at another survey and it says 60% of Russians love Putin. They love the war. They're so happy that Russia has invaded Ukraine. How can 60% be totally anti-war and 60% be totally pro-war? There's a lot of shaky methodology that ultimately comes down to a lot of these, these organizations, whether they're operating in Russia, outside of Russia, the tactics that they're using to reach out to people make them feel unsafe and probably scared to answer honestly. Um, so in terms of surveys and being able to attribute anti-war sentiment to this age group, this gender, this location within Russia is tough. Um, but we do have kind of descriptive anecdotal evidence that a lot of the driving force of anti-war organizing in Russia is led by women. Um, I think the biggest organization, or the, maybe the most prominent, is the feminist anti-war resistance that cell-based organization that in addition to anti-war actions and more kind of traditional protest um, protest actions, they're also doing legal aid. They're doing humanitarian aid for Ukrainian refugees who have been kidnapped into Russia, are stuck in Russia, either to help them live more comfortably or to get out. Um, you have also women from the um, like titular republics, some of the indigenous republics in Siberia. For example, the Alexandra Garmajapova is from, like the founder of the Free Buryatia Foundation. Um, she has been targeted both for anti-war organizing, but also this kind of national provocation on, on the basis of, of her indigenous group. 
Um, we've also seen, for example, in the Saha Republic, women using traditional dance forms to make claims against genocide, against war, um, against mobilizing men. Um, so I think that, yeah, there's definitely a gendered dynamic to who is leading the forces, um, which could be strategic insofar as maybe women are seen as less powerful, um, less of a threat. So they're able to leverage that in order to actually do some anti-war organizing. And so I think, yeah, in addition to the gender dynamic, it's also worth then talking about the ethnic uh, angle at which anti-war organizing is happening. Um, there is data that shows that there's a huge disparity between Moscow and the regions of who is actually being sent to fight in Ukraine, who is dying in Ukraine. And it's not largely ethnic Russians. It's not largely, I mean, the numbers look like it's a lot for Moscow because Moscow is such a huge chunk of the population. But proportionally, it's folks from Tava, it's folks from Sakha Republic, and so on. Um, and so I, there's, there's also then been this like popping up of groups, um, for example, the Sakha Passivist Association, the New Tava Movement, Asians of Russia, the Free Buryatia Foundation that I mentioned. These are indigenous organizations that are organizing for themselves or their ethnic group, but also have taken on this anti-war communicative um, angle, which I think is, is definitely worth following. Uh, just to uh, ask a follow-up question about that, and for reference for folks who are not familiar with Russia's geography, so some of these ethnic republics uh, you mentioned are further out in Siberia. I don't want to say the periphery. Maybe that's a loaded word for a lot of reason. But I'm, I'm curious, uh, why are members of these kind of titular ethnic groups being sent to the front line more? What is the logic of that? Oh, yeah, that's really tough to answer. I mean, um, some some have critiqued the argument of, oh, like Russia is committing double genocide in Ukraine. It's killing Ukrainians and it's killing Ukrainians by mobilizing its ethnic minorities to do so. Some then have pushed back on that argument saying, well, the places where these folks are being mobilized from are some of the poorest regions in Russia. So it makes sense being offered a small bonus to sign up of your own will, as opposed to waiting to be drafted, that financial incentive outweighs any sort of um, like disposition towards these ethnic minorities and trying to target them explicitly. Yeah. And to, to note, the military is a means of social lift that wouldn't be unique to, to Russia in that regard. Mm -hmm. Back to the green ribbons, um, only asking the easy questions on this podcast today. Uh, do they work? How would we even know if they are working? Yeah. So the political scientist in me is like, oh, where's the causal effect? Like, how would we measure X number of ribbons are seen by this many people? And we can neatly measure that in some sort of shift in public opinion or some sort of shift in action. Um, but kind of as I described with the difficulties of getting at the demographics of anti-war resistance, it's also really hard to get at uh a precise causal effect of hanging a single green ribbon. Um, like the organizers themselves couldn't even answer straightforward how many ribbons have been hung. They estimated about 10,000 over a year. Um, and so I think when answering the question, so what, does it work? I think it's more effective or it's, it's more worth our while to ask, what does this tell us about the shape and the nature of opposition in Russia today? Um, and I think the two 
big features that are worth paying attention to are the bridge between digital and in-person organizing and the bridge between organizing inside and outside of Russia. So with this digital in-person divide, um, at least among social scientists have had trouble making sense of like, well, what exactly does the internet add to opposition movements or to um, political resistance? You know, you have fun, you have your, your Facebook hashtags, you've got your internet movements, but they don't actually do anything in person. And what I think Green Ribbon exemplifies is the fact that these two work in tandem. Uh, it's not so easy. To, there's not a neat cleave between the two. Um, that The in-person action is, of course, necessary. Getting people to take on that risk and go hang something in person matters. But the digital side of things, being able to take a picture, post that to Instagram, and uh, post that to Instagram, and then be able to monitor how many views, how many likes, how many comments, that actually g- helps give us a better sense of the scale of anti-war sentiment in Russia. Um, and I think too that the green ribbon also then is maybe helps uh, helps us understand the dynamics of organizing anti-war action in Russia. So there, the person that I interviewed said that there are five total organizers, only two of whom are still in Russia. The other three have left, and they kind of work collaboratively, taking on different loads of risk, um, doing different sorts of actions, recognizing that the people who are still inside of Russia. Are, are at a higher level of risk than their than their partners. Um, and I think that this kind of divide between um, that there's there's a necessity to have people on the ground in Russia taking on this risk and it can then be supported and further facilitated by those who are outside. Um, it, it it speaks to some of the dynamics of these other organizations that are also trying to foster and sentiment. But so in addition to all of this, what is the nature of organization an organization of opposition? I will say towards what is the effect of this movement that there has been attention. You can kind of, I guess, measure impact by reaction. So for example, media outlets in Kazan, Arkhangelsk, St. Petersburg, Yekaterinburg all picked up on the Green Ribbon movement and have written articles, made content about it, even the U.S. Embassy picked up on it and created this kind of anti-war propaganda video that ended with an image of the green ribbon. Um, and so it's not only though, the, the reactions are not only positive, like, look at this, people are still um, organizing anti-war movement. There also has been a hostile attention that the organizers described receiving a lot of threats, um, receiving photographs of green ribbons that have been burned, torn and thrown on the ground. Um, and I appreciated the, their candor and saying, like, look, like if we're getting this type of pushback, that means that we're doing something right. Uh, and so I think that the essence of we we can, maybe can't neatly measure and describe, you know, this many green ribbons has this impact, but it does seem to be drawing attention uh, and and creating some buzz within Russia. So I want to stay on this topic a little bit, specifically the risk angle, and it brings to mind a quote or a paraphrase from Solzhenitsyn that a warm man can never understand a cold man. So we're talking about, oh, there's risk for these activities. Can we give voice to like exactly what activists in Russia doing this kind of thing are at risk of? Yeah, I mean, detention um, is one thing. Detention doesn't necessarily lead to jail time, but it has. Um, Over the Info is one of the big uh, organizations like tracking uh, detentions over time and um, keeping abreast of then 
what are the consequences of being detained. And they have found in the thousands people who are, so 20,000 detentions in the last 14 months and above of people who are detained. There's then also a not zero chance of being beaten, tortured, having your family harassed um, as a way to get you to capitulate and not be detained again. There's financial implications. So several people who were um, detained in May, June of 2022 were fined in the hundreds of dollars. Um, So not massive, but also a, a pretty steep hit. People who are being expelled from school, um, people who are being harassed at their job, potentially fired. Um, so the risk is not necessarily that the police are going to come and murder you in the night, but it does come with steep social and economic consequences for those who are caught doing this. I think it's important that we yeah, keep that in mind, uh, that these activists are yeah, really, really putting themselves at fairly significant risk out there. Um, and they described you just that one thing of like beyond the potential for a fine or losing your job, the the person that I spoke with described potential social alienation. Like if your family supports Putin, supports the war, if they find out that you've been organizing this way, you could lose ties to your whole family. Like and and trying to put that into numbers or like how does that compare to the the harm of being tortured or beaten by the police is difficult to quantify, but that the fear of social isolation was described um, by by the Green Ribbon organizer. Yeah, I, understandably so. Let's move to our last question. Just want to pick your brain. You had mentioned um, difficulties organizing in Kyrgyzstan, which I know is a place that's very near and dear to your heart. Um, that contrasts a little bit with what I heard on an episode I did about Israel, where it seems like Russian speakers and kind of expats and exiles there having a relatively easy time organizing. It's become a real uh, hotbed is maybe not the right word, but a real center of oppositional organization. So what's going on in Kyrgyzstan? Why is it different between countries? And are we seeing different patterns among Russian expats in different places? Yeah. So I guess to answer, I'll start with, are we seeing different patterns among expats? I think there's definitely a self-selection effect of, of so the people who are opting to go to Israel versus people who are opting to go to Tashkent or Tbilisi. One, they're being drawn by networks that already exist in these cities. Um, so you have this kind of compounding effect. Like if all of the activists who are super vocal, super radical, all end up in Tbilisi, probably if you are also a super radical person, you're not going to like opt then to go to Summerkhand or something like that. Um, you'll kind of go where your people are. Um, but then I think with the exception of Kazakhstan, a lot of the Russians who are going to Central Asia are doing so for kind of relative calm. Um, So things that I've read is folks, the the community in Tashkent, the WhatsApp group there, or the WhatsApp groups there, the Telegram groups there, they're all aflutter with, how do I enroll my kid in school? Where do I find an apartment to stay for the next year? It's people really wanting to settle for, for at least a short period. Um, and I think that that kind of reflects at the level of high politics, the, yeah, the, the narratives that leaders of Uzbekistan, of Kyrgyzstan have taken towards Russia. Um, Kyrgyzstan has, the, the president, Sadr Zhapadov has maintained neutrality, but neutrality in this case really has 
looked like subtle support for for the war. So, for example, in the really early weeks, um, the government of Kyrgyzstan shut down, police shut down this protest, an an anti-war protest. And the next day there was a pro-war protest in which children were dressed up in military garb and walking around with flags. That was allowed to happen. Um, People were kind of scolded, like fingers wagged, but no real consequences for the pro-war protest, whereas the anti-war one, people were fine, people were in trouble. Um, and yeah, like, uh, Japadov has said that Russians in Kyrgyzstan don't need to fear extradition, but also, um, Open Democracy has done really good reporting on this, that Russians who have a kind of a political bent, it's expected that they stay quiet. They're not supposed to be engaged. They're not supposed to be engaging in public life. Um, for example, there was kind of a hostel or like a co-op-y group house where um, a group of activists had settled and police targeted it. Uh, they said, like, this is not a space for you to be organizing lectures or public events about the war. You're here for safety. You're not here to be organizing anything meaningful. So I think it, it comes down to, yeah, people's individual networks of where they're flocking to, but also the, like, what each regime or what each, what, what each government is going to allow um, out of fear, perhaps, of, of jeopardizing their own diplomatic relation with Russia. I remember the uh, commercial from Kazakhstan for Kazakh chocolate, where this, not not officially a Russian, but kind of camper-looking guy, clearly crossing the border, very white, um, is looking to be struggling, and a step nomad rides on up with his chocolate bar and hands it to him. And it was, uh, I think, not so thinly veiled criticism or kind of twisting twisting the knife a little bit um that covers our territory for today colleen thank you for joining the bear market brief of course thank you for having me thanks again to colleen and to you listener for joining be sure to follow bnb russia and eurasia at the twitter handle at bear market brief the bear market brief podcast is brought to you by the foreign policy research institute that's fpri a nonpartisan think tank based in philadelphia For more information on this initiative and on many others, visit fpri.org. We'll catch you next time.